You are listening to the Bridge Community Church Podcast out of Warrington, Virginia. Our church exists to connect you to God, others, and the marketplace. For more information, you can visit us online at bridge4life.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you are blessed by today's message. Today we're continuing on in the series, The Need for the Supernatural. And uh, today we're going to be going to the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. I know across a lot of places today, it's called, uh, including here, the day, we call it Pentecost Sunday. And instead of just going to uh, Acts chapter 1 and 2, we're still going to be looking at the dimension of the Holy Spirit, but in the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. And I'm going to ask everybody to stand for the reading of the Word, if you would. And we're reading the story of where Jesus is in the synagogue. And usually you just read to, you know, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And when you're done reading that passage, you're done. We're going to read a lot more after that. So I don't mind saying this is a lengthy passage, but I'm going to be addressing all of this today. So would everybody read this with me today? Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there are many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. But when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. The Holy Spirit, I pray, as we look at the Word and we learn, I pray, that it touches our mind, it helps us to see new things, to learn things. I ask also, God, that it would uh, impact our value system, our morals, the seat of our integrity, where we make decisions and choices. Help us, God, to grow in those arenas, I pray, in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Amen. The Lord bless you. Be seated. So as we're looking at this passage of Scripture today, one of the things that this uh, text will lead us to is at the end of the service, 
We're going to be wrapping this up with communion today, so I at least wanted to make you aware of that, to be prepared for that. But one of the things that I've consistently said as we've been doing the series on the supernatural is this. In American Christianity, for decades now, we have been what I call de-supernaturalizing the Bible and the faith. Really just trying to boil it down to principles to, to listen or to live by, which is good, but we've left out what I call the activity of God, so to speak. And some of this stems from this very issue here. Many spiritual leaders have de-supernaturalized the Bible because they haven't experienced the supernatural themselves. It's hard to teach about something that you haven't experienced yourself. It's hard to tell somebody about something if you haven't uh, experienced that. Some of you are parents here today or have been parents and you know this. You can tell by listening to somebody for about five minutes whether they've had a child or not. When they're giving you comments on how to raise a child, right? You know, and it's, it reminds me of the guy who wrote the book before he had kids, Ten Commandments for Raising Children. After his third child, he just changed the book to Ten Suggestions. It's amazing when you get your feet wet and it's in it, 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 it just has a way of form. And it's the same way on this topic. You, one of the reasons it's hard for some to preach about it or teach about it is they've never experienced it. And there's a list and a host of reasons, and I'm not here to try to say there's something wrong with their spirituality, because I'll just tell you this. One of the challenges of following Christ is this, is staying hungry for the things of God, whether I've experienced all that he has for my life or not. Just stay hungry. Stay expectant. Stay hoping. Stay believing. But here's the thing, the passage that we read today. The passage of scripture we read today actually addresses the lack of the supernatural. Now I know you may be reading that and go, I don't see how the two connect and how many will trust your pastor will get it there. This passage actually speaks to this very issue. What, what, what I want you to note is typically when this passage is read, right after that passage where it says the spirit of the Lord is on me and says, that's usually the conclusion of what is read and then it's preached on from that point nothing wrong with that but how many notice we went for like another six or seven verses and some of that you're kind of like yeah I don't know what it all means I'm sure it was important but what's really critical is the fact that the Spirit of the Lord is on me let's focus there it's like no that this was all a part of what Jesus was saying and we need to get into the text and what I, our context and what I always often say I'll say it again text without context leads to pretext so it's important to understand what's going on so that you can have a better understanding of what was said. And you go, oh, well, based on the context, if that's what was said, it becomes a lot more clear to what Jesus was saying. So that's what we're going to be doing today. So let me just explain. How does this relate to the fact that it speaks to what I call a lack of supernatural or the de-supernaturalization of the Bible and the scriptures and our faith? What we need to understand is at this point in time, the prophets had been silent for 400 years. The last book of the Bible the Old, in the Old Testament was the book of Malachi. So for 400 years now, Israel's not had a prophet. There's nobody who has said, thus saith the Lord. Now, I want to put this in perspective. Our nation has only been in existence roughly about 250 years. You can imagine today, if there wasn't one pastor, one preacher, 
one evangelist, one anybody of, 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 of religion or, 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 or teachers of, of the Bible. If there was nobody for 250 in the history of our nation, there were people saying, We have never seen a move of God. We have never seen a miracle. We have never seen the activity of God. You can see how it would become a baseline of doctrine in the church because it's like, well, 250 years, if God was going to change it, we would have heard about it by now. And here it's been 400 years. And so what in essence has happened is this. The Jews had put their faith and their trust in God all in what I call a future tense. So they had come to the conclusion that the Messiah, when he appeared, when the Messiah shows up, he's going to come with the power of the Holy Spirit. And boy, things are going to change then. But till then, we have to learn to live without God's supernatural activity among us. I don't know about you, that sounds like a miserable life. That I'm serving a God who does not want to respond or will not respond, that won't act. And I'm just sort of like suffering through life enduring but I know God's gonna answer one day but for whatever he he's now been silent for 400 years and boy when the Messiah shows up things are gonna change how many can see now why they were absolutely confident the Roman Empire was gonna fall because of the Messiah and what happened was this Jesus didn't meet their expectations but he did show up the way that he said he would show up so let me take you through the Gospel of Luke up to chapter 4 so that you can see that the that Luke who wrote the gospel is proving that Jesus did come in the power of the Holy Spirit but that Holy Spirit was not for what the Jews thought it was going to be Jesus had a different agenda with the power of the Holy Spirit first of all Jesus was not he didn't start out his his life with the Holy Spirit already on him it says in Luke chapter 3, verse 22, he's now about 30 years of age. He goes and gets baptized by John the Baptist, and it says, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. So after 30 years, the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus, and his ministry now starts. This is why he told the disciples before they went out, Don't go out and do this until you go to Jerusalem and you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Even Jesus didn't start his ministry until he got the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's where you say amen. amen. And then it encourages me and I keep preaching, okay? <laughs> Just kind of a... We have a reciprocal deal here, okay? So the more you're encouraging, the more encouraging I'll be. How's that? There we go. All right. Then in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So here we have, he was descended, now he's full of the Holy Spirit, and now he's led into the wilderness. And by the way, it's showing us here the best way to deal with the temptations in your life is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Kind of adds a new understanding. It's not all, you know, God's given me the tools to be able to handle what gets thrown at me in my life. Then in Luke chapter 4, which is what we read today, it says Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So here we have it descended, he's full of the Spirit, he's led by the Spirit. And now he comes back with the power of the Spirit. Basically, Luke is trying to demonstrate to the Jews of his day, 
Jesus is the Messiah you've been waiting on, and he's got the Holy Spirit just as you anticipated the Messiah would have. But let me show you what you wanted him to do with that power is not what he's going to do. He's going to do something different because that's your agenda, and God already has an agenda. And so we come to Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. Jesus takes the, the, the scroll, and he's reading from Isaiah, and he reads this, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. And now he begins to describe what this is all about. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So the Messiah was showing up with a new dimension of the Holy Spirit. And there was going to be a new dimension of God's activity among people. Now here's one of the things, I'm going to kind of take a side note, if that's all right with you. How many are okay if I take a side note here? So it, it's, it is, as I'm looking at the story, because I, I mean, I mean, I'm always trying to learn something new along with you. I'm looking at them going, well, that's kind of the story, because we're not familiar with how they ran a synagogue meeting, it just kind of like shows, it kind of gets the feel. Jesus just walked up and said what he said and sat down, and you're kind of like, well, no wonder everybody got upset. Can you imagine somebody just like cruising up to the platform here today with my, without my approval and them saying, hey, I'm the Messiah. And then they sat down. How many know there would be a little bit of a problem? Okay. And that's kind of what happened. So I'm going to give you just kind of a, a, an insight of what a synagogue meeting in that day looked like. Okay. So just to kind of have a, a frame of mind, like when Jesus said what he said and did what he did, what was going on? So first of all, synagogue meetings in his day had an order. First thing that would happen would be a thanksgiving or a blessing was spoken. That's the first thing that would happen. See, they didn't have Pastor Malik and the bridge worship team to open up. So they didn't have the music thing, you know, so it was spoken. It wasn't sung, it was spoken. And so we're really blessed because we get to sing it. About two-thirds of you, and I saw who didn't say anything. Yeah, so that's kind of why we do We're, we're singing songs of thanksgiving, right? And, we're, and some of our songs have blessings. The lyrics are directed that direction. Then there's usually a prayer with people in the congregation given a, a window and they would all say amen together. And what that was meaning was this, I'm in agreement, so be it. It was, it was a way of affirming that that's what they wanted God to do or they were in agreement with what the speaker was saying. And everybody said, amen. amen. I was just giving you rehearsal right there. See, everybody thinks that amen was, a, was, a Pentecost, was an American Pentecostal invention. No, it was a Jewish thing. It's thousands of years old. And we're just bar. So when they saw it, when they agreed with what was being prayed, they said amen. And then there was usually a passage read from the Pentateuch. This is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now there was a, a person in the synagogue responsible for the scrolls. And so the readings were all predetermined. So a person would go up and the person responsible for the scroll would hand them a particular book of the Bible depending upon where they were in the synagogue in, in their readings. So they would hand somebody a passage or a, a book of the Pentateuch and that person had the ability to choose a passage of scripture from that particular scroll. 
Then there was also a reading from the prophets. So this is uh, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, uh, Habakkuk, Joel. And again, the speaker would not choose the book of the Bible. That was given to them by the person responsible for the scrolls, but they could choose a passage of Scripture from that scroll. And then that person would give a sermon or word of exhortation. And then when they were done, they would conclude by, with a benediction. It was a blessing pronounced by the priests, and at the end, the people would respond by saying amen. So we do the blessing at the end of the day, and everybody thinks that was Pastor Greg's invention. No, it's just, that's how they used to do it. When it was time to go, the priest said a blessing, and everybody said amen. So let's get a little practice. Everybody said There you go. So that was just their way of engaging with what was going on. So here's what's critical. So Jesus walks up and they give him the book of Isaiah. He opens it up and he reads it. Okay? And he's actually reading from Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. And he does a passage out of Isaiah 58 verse 6. Because it is the part that says to set the oppressed free. To, to proclaim the year of the Lord's That's the piece that comes from Isaiah 58, 6. So he's combining some passages that are about the Messiah. So as Jesus is reading this, people in the synagogue are going, yeah, we're, we're really excited about that because we can't wait for the Messiah to show up and make that a reality. And then Jesus throws an inside fastball. <laughs> Today that scripture is fulfilled. Inside fastball, they were like, whoa, didn't see that headshot coming. You're kidding me. You're, you're saying this is you. Jesus says, yeah. God's been silent for 400 years. God's ready to act. God's ready to talk. God's ready to step in. What he was saying was this. The supernatural God is back. And I'm the embodiment of that God who says, no longer will I be silent. So here's the thing. That's a great passage that we read. It says things like, uh, he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. People, yeah. Proclaim freedom to the prisoners. Yeah. Recovery of sight for the blind. Yeah. Set the oppressed free. Yeah. What does it mean? I don't know. But I'm just excited about it. It's got all that go get him Jesus language in it. Yeah, but like what is, what is he saying? Because without us understanding what he's saying, then we're going to parachute our own meanings on that. And I don't know about you, I don't like being taken out of context. I want to, you know, I, so, that, so I'm assuming, let's let, again, Text without context leads to pretext. So what was the language that Jesus used in his day that would help us to understand this even further? So we're going to go into this, into the language. Some of it, like I said, the New Testament was written in Greek, so we're going to back it up and look at some of the verbiages. He said, first of all, proclaim good news to the poor. 
You see the Greek word up there that Jesus used. What does he mean by poor? See, immediately some of us will say, well, you know, that's referring to people who are in economic plight and poverty. Well, hang on a minute. What he said, the word that he used here actually means this. It means to cringe. It means to shrink. It means to cower. This often was used to describe a beggar who was cringing in the shadows. So let me relay it better this way. Beggars were always fearful of an adverse response from people about who they were, their appearance, and what they were asking for. So it was, not, it was, it was pretty common for most beggars, because we do read some beggars who came out of the shadows and addressed Jesus directly, which tells you a lot they didn't fear any reper- repercussions from him. But most beggars would hide and cringe in the shadows. And they would beg as people walked by. And as people walked by, they would look to say, where, looking for where did the voice come from? And the beggar would read the body language of the person. And it was a tip-off whether that person was open. Or if I say alms one more time, I could be greeted with rocks, curses, or mockery. So they would hide in the shadows get the attention of the person, and try to read who they were, whether this was going to be a favorable response or an adverse response. If it was good, if they felt unsafe, they wouldn't ask again. They would just slip out of the shadows and, keep, and disappear. They knew how to protect themselves. And what God is saying is this to people. Did you know that there's people in every culture, in our culture, They know they're bad. And they literally hide in the shadows. And they know and they fear people's response when they tell them stuff that they've done. And they're remorseful. They are truly sorry for what they've done. But they hide in the shadows of our society because they're afraid to say, help. I screwed up. I messed up. I brought something on my life. My fault. I'm not blaming anybody. And Jesus is saying to those people, come out of the shadows. And when you come out, Come to me, he says. I'll help you. I won't throw another series of rocks at you and knock you down and beat you senseless. Put you in your... Jesus says, if you have the courage to come out of the shadows, tell me who you are. Tell me what you've done. Take responsibility for your life. I'll help you. And by the way, you see that played out in Jesus' ministry. People who came out of the shadows... A woman caught in adultery who was about to be stoned. And I could go on and on with the people that came to Jesus. They came out of the shadows. Listen, they didn't come to Jesus because they felt that they had suffered injustice. They didn't feel that they didn't get a good break. They knew they were wrong. And that everybody, that everything being thrown at them was deserved. They just don't, didn't know where to go after that. 
And Jesus says, I'll take you. Amen? Amen. Then he says this. Proclaim freedom to the prisoners. He uses the word there. And it means this. Forgiveness to those in spiritual bondage. Forgiveness for people who feel jammed up in life, stuck. It's very closely associated to the good news to the poor. He says, I'm not only calling you out of the shadows. How about if I tell you you're forgiven and you got a clean slate? Go live the life you should have lived all along. Wow. I don't know about you, I can think of all kinds of people that I've run into over the course of my life that still need to, not just hear it, some of them have heard that. They need to accept that. You know who the hardest person in the world to forgive is? Yourself. Yourself. And Jesus says this, I've come to set you free from your past. I've come to set you free from your memories, your regrets. I've come to forgive them so that you can get a different momentum in life. Now here's the thing, he doesn't, always re- he doesn't erase our memory because one of the things that we need is a memory so that we don't go out and repeat it and do it again. It's the memory that is the prevention measure. So God loves us enough to say, but you do need to remember what you did because otherwise you're liable to go out and do it again. So we have to learn that balance that God brings to his, our life as he helps us with these things. Then he says this, recovery of sight for the blind. The context of this is speaking to the fact that he is the light. Notice the capital L. He's the, he's the, big, he's the big light. And it's this, the ability to see the activity of God. For 400 years, they have not seen the activity of God. Faith was something that they were hoping for, but not getting any evidence. Can I remind you, they are still there at this moment being occupied by an army called the Roman army. They are conquered and they're occupying them. And the people are going, where's God? Doesn't he care about what's happening to this? This Roman Empire is, about, is, is self-serving. They ha- there's injustice everywhere. And God says this. How about if I open your eyes to see that I am working? You see, one of the things that we all run into in this room is this. All of us at some point have said, God, where are you? Let me remind you, Jesus said that his father was always at work. He's always, so that includes today, he's always at work. The challenge we have is this, we don't always see what he's doing. So part of that is open my, not my physical eyes, open my spiritual eyes so that I can see what you're doing in the people around me, what you're doing in my life, what you're doing in my town, what you're doing in my my region. God, I'm not here to make things worse. I'm here to make things better. But if I don't know what you're doing, I could be contradicting you. So please show me. And I've said this many times. One of the best things you can do, because I practice this myself, I take my calendar and everybody that's on my appointment for the day, I pray for those folks. God, I'm going to be meeting with such and such today. I'm going to be here. I'm going to be there. 
And God, I, don't pres- I always say, I don't presuppose that I know all the activity that you're doing in their life. So can you show me enough so that what I say or what I do is complementary to your activity? I would never want to say something to them is, that is against what you're trying to accomplish. So I need to know what you're doing. So in that conversation, as we, as we engage in dialogue, please show me something that I, so that I know what my role is today in that person. So God is, listen to me, your coworker, God's working in them. You go, have you met my coworkers? <laughs> see, that's spiritual blindness. The fact that you can't see what God is doing in them. Can I tell you, God came for you, recovery of sight for the blind. See, they, see God's activity could show up in their day and they wouldn't know it because they'd never seen it. So people, oh, that was a great coincidence. Oh, that was lucky. No, no, that was God making this all happen and orchestrating it and making it work. And then he says this, to set the oppressed free. I want you to think of this. This means overwhelmed by life's painful circumstances. This could be the result of sin or it could just be the result of life. Yeah, we know that one of the things we learn very quickly about why God says do this, don't do that, is he's helping us to avoid consequences, right? And so when we commit those things, we find out there's consequences, and then we go, yeah, now I understand why God said not to do that. But the other part is this. Sometimes you don't have to do anything wrong. Sometimes just walking through life, it just gets heavy. You didn't do anything wrong. Life is just heavy. And Jesus says, the Messiah has come to set the oppressed free. He says, I can help you carry whatever you got to carry in life. I'll be there. I'll lift that because sometimes life can get so heavy, you feel like I can't move another inch. I'm swamped. I'm buried. I'm, I, God, I'm trying to keep my head above water. I'm sure there's people under the sound of my voice that you said, God, I'm literally drowning right now. And I don't know what to do. Can I tell you, he came to set the oppressed free. He came to help people whose circumstances in life were so heavy, they were going under. He said, I came to help you. So with that, we come to this passage Luke chapter 4, verse 25 through 27. And this is the passage that is associated with what we've read, but it rarely gets read because it's really controversial. But this is the part that Jesus said, and if you read the rest of the story, they got really angry at Jesus. All of a sudden, the synagogue meeting became very disruptive, and they were mad at him. And it's because of this section right here. So what did Jesus say? So I'm going to read it, but I'm going to, and then I'm going to break it down for you. He said, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. So let me stop there. For as much notoriety that the Jewish people would give Elijah they would avoid certain aspects of Elijah's life because it was very uncomfortable for them. 
But they love to, to, to reference him, but it was one of those, these are the things about Elijah that we just don't discuss. How many of you, boy, that's a real mature approach. But what happened, was, what happened here was this. You notice, even when John the Baptist was alive, they said, oh, I wonder if this is, is he Elijah? When Jesus was ministering, he said, hey, who did the people say that I am? So they said, well, some people say you're Elijah, and some say you're John the Baptist. And then he said to Peter, well, who do you say I am? He said, you're the son of God. Hey, so there was all, it's like, wow, so they're, they're really in love with this prophet of, of Elijah, right? But here was the problem that they had with Elijah that they steered clear of. And it was this. It says here, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. The heavens were shut up for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine. So you had all these widows who were in desperate need, and Elijah never helped one of them. Instead, he goes up to Zarephath in the region of Sidon. He helps a Gentile, a pagan widow. Now you know why Israel didn't want to talk about it. He didn't even help his own people in this regard. What? He had God's supernatural activity and he didn't even bother. He didn't, listen, he didn't help one widow in Israel. But he goes to the enemy and he helps their widow. So how did the Israelites handle it? Well, we're just not going to talk about it. Then he, and so Jesus stays on it going, hey, I'm going to bring up the stuff you guys never want to talk about here. You, you have sanitized what God's doing. He then says this, and there was many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha. He followed Elijah as a prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed. Only Naaman the Syrian. Who was a military officer in an occupying army? He's a true pagan Gentile. And he's saying, so how do you explain the fact that Elisha would never heal one person in Israel of leprosy, but yet he goes to the occupying army, finds a commander, and heals him of leprosy. But he never helps anybody in Israel with leprosy. Can you see why a lot of times this doesn't get preached on? Because it's a very awkward passage. So let me, let me show you this. What had happened back in those days was this. Israel was treating God as a transactional God. We do this, you do this for us. And what God was showing was this. I am not a transactional God, I'm a relational God. He said, what do you mean by that? We have a lot of parents in this room. And because of relationship... I know which children you have a tendency to favor in this church. The ones who are related to you. You do more for them than you do any other children. And every parent said. Amen. And the reason is, you say, well, I, I, like my I like my friend's children, but I love mine. That's okay. Because it's the same way, I mean, hey, I like your kids, but I love mine. There's things I'll do for my kids that I won't do for your kids. That doesn't mean I don't like your kids. It's just, but I, you know, how many, how many know? Relationship has privileges. And every grandparent said, 
See, you've got to help these parents out. They're feeling guilty for agreeing with me on what I'm saying. But every grandparent in this room will go, I don't have any problem with that. I have some of the brightest grandkids in the world. I'm just waiting for the world to find them. Yeah. yeah so, okay. So relationship has privileges. And what happened was this. There was a widow inside him who didn't have all the religious training that the Israelites had, but she knew their God was different. And he wasn't a transactional God. He was a relational God. He wanted to talk to her. And God sent her the prophet Elisha. And there was Naaman. He had a lot of gods in his nation, but he noticed the God of Israel was different. And he noticed that God wanted to talk to people. And God sent Elisha. And Israel was always trying to do a transaction with God. But they didn't want the weight of the responsibility that came with it, meaning a relationship. So I'll give you a classic example. When they got in severe trouble with the Philistines and the war was not going well, they decided to pull the, what you call the ace. We have the Ark of the Covenant. Anybody who touches the Ark of the Covenant will die. What we'll do is we'll take that Ark of the Covenant out there and we'll dare those Philistines to come against us. God will have to come through for us and we will whip the Philistines, because we have a transaction with God. This is the Ark of the Covenant. This represents His presence. Regardless of how, whether we should be better or not, God has to honor the fact that that's His Ark. Transaction. They take it to war, and God lets the Philistines capture it. What happened to anybody who touches it dies? The Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant and take. Now, a plague did break out in their camp, and they came to the conclusion I don't think we want to keep this Ark of the Covenant for too long here. <laughs> but it was devastating to Israel because God had canceled the transaction. God says, I don't work like that. My supernatural flows from relationship with me. You don't want relationship, you don't get my activity. But who I am and what I'm capable of doing follows your relationship with me. You want me first before you want what I can do. Relationship. And that's what he was showing here, that God not only came to reveal his supernatural activity, he was also showing that God was tired of the existing status and said, now I want a relationship with you. And I want a relationship so bad with you, I'll solve the issues and problems that are in your life. But it flows through relationship. So as we wrap up this service and we move towards communion, what I want you to recognize is this. Communion is not something that God gave us to, so that we could get something that we want. God said this. This is very personal. That, that bread represents my son's body. Do you know what he went through for you? 
And that cup represents his blood. Do you understand what he had to sacrifice? Do you understand his blood was shed so that yours would not have to be? Do you, and he's saying, when you participate in communion, you are telling me you get it. And that you're thankful. And that you're grateful. And that you're in relationship. And God says this. You come to me in relationship. I'm going to do things for you whether you ask me or not. When I come home, sometimes there's boxes on my porch <laughs> that mysteriously appear. And the first thing that crosses my mind is my grandkids must be on the way. Because my wife, she is a, uh, she's the reason Amazon is Amazon. Her membership number is one. She literally got in at the ground level, you know what I'm saying? Got in at the ground level. So I'll walk in the door and I'll say, hey, there's boxes on the porch. Oh, yeah, 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 I was expecting this. I said, well, the grandkids are coming, so what'd you get them? And she'll tell me, well, you know, we're going to do this. You know, I got, I got stuff to play some water sports in the pool and stuff, and we're going to do this. And, I said, and, and he, listen to me, my grandkids never ask her for anything. She just does it. Why? Because she's their nana. She just does it out of relationship. If you have her as a nana, I'm just telling you, you get, you're getting stuff. You're getting stuff. You never even had the confidence and the courage to ask for. She'll get it. Why? Because it's relationship. There's be, I'm just telling you, there's benefits of being related to her. Same way with God. God says, if you give me your relationship, He says, I can do immeasurably more than you can ask or imagine. But it starts with relationship. God says, watch what I'll do for you. Even when you don't ask, watch what I do for you. And so we're going to go into a time of communion. Establish or strengthen that relationship that you have with him today. Amen? I'm going to ask everybody to stand if you would. And you should have received the communion elements when you came in. If you did not, the ushers are in the aisle. So just hold up your hand. They'll come to you and they'll hand you one of these. But we're going we're gonna to do a new song here. We sent it out by email so that it helps, helps you to become familiar with it. So if you want to go ahead and switch to the lyrics now, you can. But I'm going to ask Pastor Malik to lead, and the team just to lead us in a segment of that song. We have plenty of time for communion this morning. But I want you to lift your voice. It's a really, I think it's an easy song. But man, what a, so some powerful lyrics here, folks. Talking about relationship, that I get what he did for me. So come on, let's lift our voice. How can it be? You're the God who weeps. There's a God who weeps. And 
suffering upon his body for you so that you could have relationship. Come on, everybody, lift your voice right now. bread together. We eat now in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everybody said amen. Let's eat together. Next, I want you to hold that cup, and for the next 30 to 45 seconds, can you praise Him that He shed His blood so that you didn't have to shed yours, and therefore that gives us relationship. Come on, thank Him for that right now. take this cup representing the blood of Christ. We drink together now in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said amen. Let's drink together. Come on, sing it now. Your cross, my freedom, your strength, my healing, oh praise, King Jesus, 
Listen, before we dismiss this morning, I want us to pray for people who need a healing. Because, see, that's one of the benefits of being a son, a daughter of, of Christ, is healing. And if you need a miracle in your body, I'm going to ask you right now just to lift your hand. We're going to have people around you pray. But you say, hey, I need a miracle today. Or I have a family member I'm standing in for. They need a miracle. Can I see your hand this morning? Come on, just lift it up. Hold it there. If there is somebody standing next to you, would you go right now and lay hands on them? And some of you, you may have to get out of your seat because you see somebody standing by themselves. Make, make your way to them. And for the next 60 seconds, we're going to pray. And then I'm going to give us a dismissal. Come on, everybody. Lift your voice. Let's pray that God would show His healing power today. Come on. Lift your voices out loud. house of God lift your hands as I say the blessing today I bless you in the name of the Lord may he bless you in this city and in this county may the fruit of your womb and the crops of your land all your livestock be blessed may he bless the work of your hands at home at work at church in this community may he bless your coming and your going may the Lord grant the enemies rising up against you be defeated when they come at you in one direction, let them flee from you in seven directions. May the Lord send a blessing on everything you put your hand to do. May He continue to establish you as His holy people. May all people see you have been called by the name of the Lord. May the Lord grant you prosperity, opening up the heavens, the storehouse of His bounty. I bless the work of your hands. I bless you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and everybody gave a shout of amen. 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 The Lord bless you. Have a great day.